Would you open your copy of the Scriptures this morning and join me in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, this was a big passage for us to read through and think through this week, chapters 18, 19, and 20, and so I hope that um, that didn't scare you away. The structure of these three chapters in 1 Samuel are such that it opens with Jonathan, the king's son, the crown prince, the heir elect, making a covenant with David, an outsider to the family, but who has been thrust onto the scene as Israel's champion. That's what we see in the first five verses of chapter 18. And ironically enough, chapter 20 expands on that covenant. And so the covenant serves as bookends, and it's actually the, the main theme of this section of 1 Samuel. There's no question that Jonathan is accepting and submitting to David as God's anointed. And sandwiched between these covenants, we read of Saul's efforts to actually prevent that from happening. The crown prince accepts God's elect as the next king of Israel, but the current king struggles with this and, in fact, resists it. And I wonder if, as you read through this passage and you saw in chapter 18 and in chapter 19, the repetitive nature, the cycle of violence that is pursuing David by the hands of Saul and his servants, if you wondered, good grief, how in the world could somebody who is so loved by so many, be simultaneously experiencing such hardship. Maybe there was a little bit of you in that story. And you find yourself today following Christ, but being opposed as a follower of Christ. Trying to do the right thing and loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, while simultaneously being attacked or undergoing great hardships and great trials. Let me just give you a thought that I believe comes from the text and will help us think through this lengthy portion of 1 Samuel. Here's the thought. As you suffer for following Jesus, trust in God's steadfast love. That may be all you have, but it's enough. As you suffer for following Christ, trust in God's steadfast love. I want us to see this as we're going to work through this three chapters in three sections. Um, Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 18. Follow along as I read. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that would be David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor. And even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, 
and also in the sight of Saul's servants. We see here that Jonathan had a deep and profound affection for David instantly because David stood in the gap at Israel's time of great need. Jonathan was awed by this man, but he also had a deep affection for him. And so Jonathan loves David in word and deed because what he does is he makes a covenant with him. What's the nature of a covenant? Well, if you go back to Genesis, you'll see the first covenant that God makes with Abraham is, a, is God wakes him up at night. After telling Abraham to prepare a religious ceremony, what we will understand is a religious ceremony after the fact, but I'm sure Abraham might have been a little bit confused when God told him to take livestock and cut it in half and spread half of the carcass there and half of the carcass there. And then God comes to Abraham, and he, as, as though he were a smoking torch, passes through these two animals, these two parts of what was once one animal. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the imagery of that is intended by its very nature to give a clear understanding. As these animals are, so may I be if I violate this covenant I make with you. This is what Jonathan does with David. If I am unfaithful to my word in this covenant, may I end up like this animal. And what was interesting also in these first five verses is not only does Jonathan make a covenant with David, but look at what he does. Just as we saw in chapter 17 when Saul gave his armor to David, it was to signify David was his champion. So Jonathan now has entered covenant with David, and then he gives him his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt, which is to say, Jonathan says, all the accoutrements that come with being the crown prince, I now put them on you. I give them to you. He has willingly transferred his right of succession to David. Now, we've got to just think for a moment Who in their right mind does something like this? Who gives up position and power to someone else? What is rightfully due to them, and they extend it and give it to someone else and actually take a subservient position to that one. Davis, in his commentary, says this, This deed on Jonathan's part was an act of faith. And here's the application Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have, and we submit to Christ, who is Israel's true king. You remember John the Baptist's words? He is the new hot rising star on Israel's uh, national news. Everybody's flocking to the wilderness to see this crazy man in rough camel's hair, eats locusts and honey and lives in the wilderness, but man, he can preach. And Jonathan says, or or, I'm sorry, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he points out to all his followers, he must increase, but I must decrease. When was the last time that you embraced God's plan even though it might have led to you taking a back seat to someone else. Those of us that are here today who are hearing this and we are married, 
let us not forget that in marriage, we surrender our rights of autonomy in order to serve Christ and our spouse. We see it in Jonathan's example. He loved David in word and in deed. But notice that this kind of love that Jonathan shows David is not held by all. We're going to read verses 6 through 12. And we're going to see that this is just, not to do a pun, I almost did it, I'll just say it, this is the tip of the spear, okay? You read it, good job. So this is just an example of what will occupy the rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands? And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed him from that day on. The very next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that, he had great success. He stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. What we see in this next section that is from verse 6 of chapter 18 to the very end of chapter 19 is that David has favor with God and with man except Saul. So favor with God and a falling out with the king would summarize this lengthy passage. Saul makes numerous attempts to kill David. Twice, when the harmful spirit is upon him, Saul tried to kill David with his spear. We may ask, why didn't David get the message after the first time? Well, I think to give David the benefit of the doubt, he's not foolish. He's thinking Saul's out of his mind. This wasn't Saul's heart demonstrated toward me. This is Saul being controlled by this harmful spirit. But Saul, having failed as an assassin, he asks David, as chapter 18 goes on in verses 17 through 29... He asks David to marry one of his daughters and to be more than just a commander of a thousand, but he gives him a higher station, and he says, fight my battles against my enemy, the Philistines. And Saul's motivation is to put David in a spot where he's hoping the Philistines would kill him. And when marriage to Saul's first daughter doesn't come about, he intends to marry her to, or him to Michelle. And it's ironic that he says 
He's hoping that she would be a snare to him in verse 21. When that also failed, when David didn't die at the hands of the Philistines, and David's marriage to Saul's troublesome daughter didn't be proved to be disruptive, in fact, she loved him, Save it, uh, Saul just opens it all up. I'm no longer going to disguise my ambitions and my intentions. I want David dead. I'm telling you this, my son Jonathan, and I'm telling my servants. Chapter 19, kill this man. He attempted numerous times to kill David, and yet what do we also see in the text? God protected David and foiled Saul's efforts. First, we see in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, when Saul declared his goal to wipe out David. It's open season on this guy, David. Jonathan intercedes with Saul. He uses rational, moral, and theological arguments. He's not done anything wrong. He's only helped you. How, how could you sin against him? God is using him. Why not appreciate the benefits of this? This is a great sin you seek to do, my father. And what ends up happening is temporarily Saul and David are reconciled, verse 9 or verse 7 tells us. Then in Saul's other efforts, we see that his daughter actually delivers David. She warns him of the plot as men are lying in ambush outside of their house. She tells him what her father has planned. You could read more about this in Psalm 59, which is David's version of the story. But unlike Jonathan, she doesn't intercede for David. Instead, she lied and made herself out to be a victim. Maybe this is the character that Saul hoped would lead to David's undoing. And then finally, as you get to chapter 19, verses 18 through 20, we get to this really unusual passage where David escapes, he flees for safety with Samuel, and they move away from Samuel's hometown to another area in Ramah called Naoth. Saul discovers David there, he sends out a group of policemen to bring him back. That group begins to prophesy. In other words, God himself, through his spirit, immobilized these soldiers. Saul sends a second group. The same thing happens. A third group, the same thing happens. Finally, Saul says, i got to do this myself. But before he even gets there, the Spirit of God comes upon him in such a way that he begins prophesying, and then when he gets there and arrives there, he doesn't raise a weapon or hurl one at David. He instead strips himself of his clothes, embarrasses himself publicly, and lies in the dirt at the feet of Samuel all that day and night prophesying. What does that mean? Well, simply it means this. God supernaturally protected his anointed He made Saul and his soldiers helpless so they couldn't hurt David. And we see an example of this where God will use even sinful men to speak truth. In the New Testament, the high priest Caiaphas prophesied in John 11, verses 49 through 52, that Jesus would die for the nation, the very man who will cast his vote to kill Jesus, says it's better for one to die for the nation than the nation to suffer. So we see that God will deliver his people through normal means. David's allies, Jonathan and Michelle, ironically Saul's own family, deliver David. 
And then when he is away from their safety and vulnerable, God himself supernaturally intervenes and delivers David. So what does all this mean for us? Here's three observations of where we are to this point as we come to the end of chapter 19. First, God uses normal and supernatural means to deliver his children. Normal and supernatural. He uses real people, and then sometimes God just totally intervenes. David knew that salvation was from the Lord, that God sometimes saved through slingshots or friends, and other times supernaturally intervening as he did here. But what about us? Can we, because we know we're not David, God's not called us and anointed us to be Israel's king, can we be confident that God will deliver us using either normal or supernatural means. And again, I want to quote from Davis because I love what he says here. God will keep us until whatever he has ordained for us to be or do is accomplished. That's your confidence, Christian. We can send out missionaries who will go to hostile places We trust and they trust and put their trust that God has put them there and will keep them until what God has called them to be, ordained ordained them to be, or to accomplish is finished. Davis goes on to say, I do not need to share David's experience. It is enough to know David's God. And I wonder if we feel that way or we demand God to kind of reenact you know, the Exodus, or David and Goliath in our lives, in order for us to, to know with confidence that God truly is defending us, that God will rescue us. Well, brothers and sisters, this is not our calling. This is not what God has called us to be. He wants us to believe with confidence that He will use normal means of grace, and then sometimes He will show up in supernatural ways. Brothers and sisters, think back on your own story of conversion. The normal means of grace by which God redeemed you, it was through sitting in a Sunday school class. It was through Bible studies at home, your parents leading you and teaching you the Scriptures. It was through the conversation of a friend, a co-worker who was sharing the gospel with you at work. And for some of us, it wasn't that. It was a traumatic experience or some kind of cataclysmic watershed moment where God confronted us. But either way, we can be assured that God does this in order to deliver his children. Here's a second observation. Don't be surprised when success is accompanied by opposition. Christian, you will suffer for following Christ. But you can also excel in godliness. You see, David, what we see in this passage is that there is a spiritual reality unfolding in the physical world. This is bigger than a political intrigue. This is bigger than a a king who's trying to protect his throne and his dynasty, even though God told him he wouldn't have one. This isn't just players on a chessboard making moves. This is bigger than that. It reveals a spiritual reality that's going on where God's anointed, spirit-filled, spirit-led man, David, is successfully doing God's work, but what we see is a spirit-less or a spirit-oppressed Saul who is opposing God's work and God's man. 
there's a real spiritual element that's taking place here. It's, it's playing out in the physical world. And so, like David, we may be confused because we are seeing our hunger and thirst for God's Word just grow exponentially. God's using us to share the gospel, to teach and serve other Christians. And while all that's going on, we thought life was going to get easier and better, and what we actually find out is there's just another obstacle being propped up in, in front of us. There's another person who's calling us out as fake or insincere. We're, we're, we're being mocked for our stand at school. And so we're confused I just want us to be clear that we cannot allow suffering to become the excuse for sin. As you look through this passage and you read through it, David, what does David keep doing? He keeps doing what God's called him to do. He doesn't get ahead by cutting throats. He doesn't get ahead by lying and seeking to manipulate and game the system. David demonstrates godliness and integrity, which ends up endearing him to the nation, to Saul's servants, and even Saul's own family. The opposition he faced was sinful. And may the only opposition any Christian face be a result of their testimony for Jesus rather than their own sinfulness. God's favor, here's the third observation. Not only does God use normal and supernatural means to deliver his children, don't be surprised when success is accompanied by opposition. But here's the third one. God's favor ought to sustain us even when our circumstances remain unchanged. Did you notice that? David's growing in favor with the people, with Saul's servants, Saul's family. Everything he touches turns to gold. And yet Saul just keeps turning up the heat trying to destroy him. In spite of the many deliverances that God gave David through Jonathan, through Michelle, through his own spirit, we see that the danger remains. David is driven from his home. He's driven from his wife. His life is in constant danger in chapters 18 and 19. This is what he begins chapter 20 with, telling Jonathan, there's just a step between me and death. It appears all throughout the rest of 1 Samuel that this tenuous position that David holds, that nothing is going to change until either David is killed or Saul is killed. So let me just say this. If you are confused by experiencing spiritual growth alongside a spiritual opposition, you may be tempted to think that God has lost favor with you. And so I want you to listen in very carefully here. God's hand of protection doesn't always lead to a resolution of our problems. I mean, certainly you can't outrun the consequences of sin, right? You do something wrong and you can't just say, I I only spent $5 of sin and I only want $5 of sin back. It doesn't work that way. It's like planting seeds. You will get much more back than you ever invested I'm not talking about the consequences of sin here, though. I'm talking about the problems that we face in our lives. There doesn't always mean that they immediately or instantly or even gradually go away just because God's favor is upon us. 
And this is why each and every one of us as Christians need to be good historians and biographers of our own spiritual journey with Christ. We need to see and our past with God and to notate and to remember the ways in which He has demonstrated His grace to us. Because there will come a time when the suffering is so severe we will doubt His favor and it will cloud out any reality of what is true. So Christian, know that the favor that God has on you is greater than the wrath of any enemy. And don't lose sight of this in this long, hard season of struggle. Here's, Here's the thought. Although you may not be past your trial, the fact that you're still standing is evidence that God has not deserted you. We've gone through these two chapters, and now as we come to chapter 20, we see that um, we are urged to not let anything keep us from fulfilling our promises. We see that Jonathan had made promises, and now he keeps promises as he renews his covenant with David and actually enlarges it. It's formalized in chapter 18 in the first five verses, but it's mentioned here in chapter uh, chapter 20 in verse 8, and then it's expanded in verses 12 through 17, it's God is a witness, we're told, in verse 23. And so let's, let's walk through the text quickly here. David appeals to Jonathan. David comes to Jonathan, the one who made the covenant with him, and he says, Brother, what have I done to deserve this from your father? Where's my sin? I don't know why he's treating me this way. He asks David, why is his father trying to kill him? Or he asked Jonathan that. And Jonathan is trying to dissuade him in verse 2. No, he's not trying to do this. He would have told me. And David is like, no. In fact, he knows we made the covenant with one another. That's exactly why he's hiding this from you. And so as we come to verse 4, Jonathan's like, David, you tell me what to do and I will do it. I want you to know that I am not a part of this. I will do anything to fulfill my vows that I've made to you in our covenant. And so as we come to verses 5 through 8, we see David's plan to test Saul's heart. There's a feast coming up, and David should be there with the king. And he won't be there, and he gives Jonathan a script to follow if Saul asks any questions. And if Saul is okay with the fact that David's not there, then that shows that his heart truly is good towards David. But if he gets angry, then Jonathan will know that he intends to harm David. And then David, what does he do in verses 7 and 8? But three times he describes himself as a servant to Jonathan, your servant. He invokes the covenant and he says, Jonathan, if there is wrong in me according to our covenant, then let you be the one who takes my life, not Saul. This this shows us how intentional these two men took this oath, this covenant that they made with one another. They are willing to their own harm to do whatever it meant to, t- to keep the covenant, to show their faithfulness, their steadfast love to one another. It signifies more than just an affection for one another. It called forth a loyal love, a devoted love. And David is confident in approaching Jonathan as the greater, the one who initiated the covenant. He says, hey, I'm here because I need help. You're the only person I can come to. I'm all alone in this. And it's getting harder and harder to escape the hand of your father. 
David's in trouble. And so he goes to the one who's made a covenant with him. And this covenant is the only thing that gave David comfort in a time of uncertainty. You consider what it meant to David when Jonathan not only warned him of the danger in chapter 19, but here in chapter 20, also reaffirmed his loyalty, his love, and his commitment. David knew this. No matter what the circumstances may be, no matter how many adversaries lined up against him, David had Saul in his corner, or Jonathan in his corner. And so, what does this mean for us? Well, I think we need to do one step before we get to us. And that's this. The book of 1 Samuel was not written in real time. So, you're not picking up your newspaper finding out, okay, Saul's chased David here today. And David gets away. I wonder what will happen tomorrow. This was written much later. And I think it was written during either the time of the divided monarchy, when there was Israel to the north and Judah to the south, or perhaps even during the time of the exile. And so you think about this. If an Israelite is living in a really difficult situation as an exile in Babylon or Assyria, and they're opening up their copy of 1 Samuel, and they're reading through it, or they're hearing this read to them, and they're reminded that God made a covenant to them, and they see covenant faithfulness on Jonathan's part and David's part, perhaps that would give hope to them that they, like David, could come to the one who made a covenant with them and they could appeal to him for help and they would be confident that he would. It's much more than a contract, God's covenant with his people. It is a clear demonstration of his heart that is rich in loving kindness. John 1.14 describes Jesus as the God who is full of grace and truth. And here's how this brings comfort to us as well. When you seek loving kindness, you can find it in Christ. You can find it in His arms and His arms alone. Go to the one who has made covenant with you because your Lord is your only hope in uncertain times. As we look at verses 9-17, through 17, Jonathan declared, I'm going to keep covenant with you, David. I will tell you my father's intentions And then he renewed and expanded his covenant with David. He adds provisions and oaths which include, hey, let's not just do this for each other, but I know if I'm alive when you become the king, please take care of my family. You see, this happens yet once again where Jonathan reaffirmed his commitment to act according to the covenant just as he did in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And then, yet again, we see how otherworldly he is. Not only did he give up his right to rule, but now he is asking and promising to protect a man who should be his rival. He will, if, he, if he doesn't tell David Saul's mind on the matter, may he die. That's what Jonathan says. Further, he affirms that the Lord is with David just as he used to be with his father. And then he asks David, extend this covenant, mercy to my family. In other words, when you become king, the custom of the kings of that day was to kill off any rivals. You slaughter all the descendants of your former 
rival's offspring. You, you remove any claim to the throne to secure your own. And Jonathan knew that, and he says, promise me that you won't do that. And David does. He gives his word And now both men have committed themselves to a path that puts them at odds with the natural order of things. Here, what we see in all these chapters about covenant love is this. It becomes a synonym for uncommon faithfulness. You know, you make a promise to somebody, but you quickly break it when the heat gets turned up. If it's a little opposition, or maybe you're just not interested in keeping it, that's not covenant love. Covenant love is a husband and wife who are, are struggling in their marriage with poor communication, poor habits, wrong, sinful choices, but they remain together and they seek to keep promises they made to one another in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's where you will yield yourself in order to prove uncommon faithfulness. That's covenant love. And this type of faithfulness ought to be the defining characteristic of Christians, whether we are married or Christians who have covenanted together with a local church, that we are giving up our rights in order to show loving kindness to those with whom we covenant together. We cannot fulfill our promises if we don't lean into the fact that there will be times where it will really inconvenience and pain us to keep them. Never forget, Christian, that God has entered into covenant with us through Christ and that we can boldly come to Him as the weaker ones who are crying out for help from the stronger one and we can be assured that God's actions toward us are completely consistent with His character. His mercy and love. Because He will fulfill His promises whether we face illness or opposition or even death. We can be assured that there truly is peace between us and God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you might have been confused in verses 18 through 21 or even at the end in verses 35 through 41. uh, Why all these details about a sign and a little boy and a bow and arrow and go a little further on this side or that side? These guys understood that no doubt Jonathan was being watched by Saul's spies. They had no confidence that they would ever be able to see each other face to face again. They had to work out a complex series of signs in order to convey truth when they couldn't communicate it verbally. And so that's what they they hatched this grand scheme. And then David waits, verse 24. Saul sees Jonathan at his table in verse 25 and waits a day when there's no David. And then he finally asks Jonathan why David wasn't there. And as Jonathan explains in verses 26 through 29, Saul rails against his son. And then in his anger, he tries to do to his own son what he had attempted twice before with David, to pin him to the wall. His response in verses 30 and 31 reveals that he not only knew of their covenant, but then did you notice that he ordered his son to break his covenant vows in order to keep the throne? I mean, what kind of character do you want to see in your son where he will make a covenant and then because of a self-interest, it's okay to break it? 
It's not good parenting. Jonathan responds with, what has he done? And that's when Saul sought to kill his own son. And so Jonathan leaves the room angered, not only in his grief for David and what his father intends for him, but also the disgrace his father had shown him. You see, Jonathan knew that the kingdom belonged to David because he was God's anointed His heart wasn't, how do I oppose this? Instead, it was, how do I support this? How do I get behind God's plan and embrace it and then see it followed through? Jonathan understood something that I think maybe we struggle with at times, that our life is much more than simply our possessions. God has not called us to secure a position for ourselves in our kingdom, but to embrace and serve in His kingdom. Christian, may our lives follow a similar similar ambition that our heart's desire would be to see God's kingdom flourish, that our joy would be in keeping our covenant promises. As you look at verses 35 through 42, Jonathan returns to David, gives him the message, and these two brothers say goodbye. And before we close, I want to bring your attention to verse 42. So here we are. For Samuel chapter 20 and verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. What we see here is Jonathan gives a word to David as these two brothers weep over what is taking place. He says, go in peace. Now, that doesn't mean that David's troubles are over, as we've already noted. We know that this struggle will last for many more years. Jonathan is bidding goodbye to his dear friend, and he's giving him this assurance. David, as you go, know that there is nothing between us. There is only peace. You don't have to look over your shoulder for me, David. You don't have to wonder where I stand on this situation, David. I am for you because I am for God. There is peace between them. And further, there is this understanding that this relationship will endure though all others fail. Christian, when our lives are not peaceful, know this. We have an even greater peace because there's an even greater one than Jonathan that has pledged his friendship to us. Jesus is that friend. And he reminds us of this. He himself says this when he instituted the Lord's Supper. This cup that we are about to share together as a church is the new covenant in my blood, he said. This is the kind of peace that comforts us in all our disappointments, all of our dangers and disasters. In Christ, God has forgiven us of our sins, all of them. And in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from God's favor and protection. Friend, our greatest enemy is sin, which eventually leads to death. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a believer, I want to thank you for coming and for sitting in our midst and observing. Let me just encourage you that our sin puts us at odds with a holy God. And yet, in His mercy and through His Son, Jesus, He offers peace to sinners. 
Christians can experience this ongoing peace with God, and so can you, friend. You simply need to confess your sin to Him today and plead for the forgiveness that comes through the name of Jesus and be reconciled to your God. After the service, I encourage you to seek out one of the men who are on the back of your bulletin, one of the elders here at South Canyon. We want to help you understand and embrace God's peace. So as we close, Christians, as you suffer for Christ, trust in His covenant love. Let's pray. Lord, sovereign one, who keeps covenant with us, who protects and provides for us at times and in ways we do not always see, we praise and thank you for your faithful, loving kindness. Help us to seek your kingdom and not our own. Keep us always clinging to the cross of Jesus. And help us to show steadfast love to those with whom we've covenanted together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.